podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 19, Germans in Alsace. Ugh, I'm so sorry, everyone. The episode was completed. I had it recorded. I was just going to do some minor edits in the morning before I uploaded it today. And it's missing. I'm like, okay, maybe I just saved it in the wrong folder. Nope. It's not in that folder either. So, okay, okay. I looked around a little bit longer. Turns out my computer had decided to delete the entire episode. So, I went to the recycled bin, got it out, and a lot of the audio was corrupted. <laughs> so, needless to say, I am having to re-record it today. I'll edit it tonight. And it will be up tomorrow, probably around 10 o'clock. But still, ah, still. Anyway, I'm so sorry about the delay, guys. Don't know what happened. Back to the episode, though. Actually, wait, no, before we get to the episode, I want to mention that it would have been yesterday, I happened to stumble on an amazing man. He's played a huge role in American, British, French, Greek, and German history. He was born in Berlin, and he will die in New York. So please, if you have a chance, go to the Facebook page, go to Twitter, find him. His name is Franz Lieber. He was Monday's post on On This Day. Read his story. It's a little long, I know, but read his story. Realize everything that he was able to accomplish without being nobility, without having a silver spoon. If you'd like to learn more, let me know. Send me a message. Tweet me. Leave a Facebook post. Send me an email, podcastongermany at gmail.com. Let me know if you'd be interested, because I would really like to do an episode on him, but I also don't want to take up your time if it's something that's not exciting to you. I was thinking maybe if you guys would be interested in learning more about him, I could do an episode on him for the 25th or 30th. So just let me know. All right, now we can get to today's episode. We've talked about why Rome and why Germans are starting to go into Gaul. Now we're going to actually talk about the first major confrontation for control of Gaul between the Suebi and Rome. We're actually not going to get to the actual fight today, but we're going to lead up to it. So the Swabi, this tribe that's going to cross the Rhine and invade Gaul, was considered one of the most powerful tribes by the Romans at this point in history. Now, they might not have been just one tribe. Remember, the Romans weren't very good at distinguishing one group of Germans from another. In fact, Julius Caesar pretty much just calls them Germans the entire time. What we know about the Swabi is that they got their riches off of trade with the Gauls, as they were the go-between, as Gauls would give their goods across the Rhine to the Swabi, and the Swabi would trade it along to other tribes further east, and through looting and raiding. So, if you're not going to trade for it, They'll just take out their axe and take it for themselves. The Swabi were known to be powerful warriors. 
the Helvetii had fought them. That was the tribe that eventually decided that it was time to move on and decided to go against Rome rather than risk angering the Germans across the Rhine. But the Swabi were known to be amazing warriors. And they would hire themselves out when they wanted the money. And it was good business for them. Someone's going to pay you to go fight. Any of the loot you get, you get to keep. Same with the slaves. And you can grab some food. You don't have to be stuck on your farmland. You're being able to go and live a life as a warrior. Their arrival into Gaul was because they were mercenaries. And it wasn't because of Rome. Instead, it was a rivalry that had been playing out in Gaul for decades. This rivalry was between the Arverni of southern Gaul and the Edui of Burgundy. Now you're probably going, okay, who are these guys? Keep introducing new people. Who are these guys? Well, the Arverni were the largest, most powerful tribe that just so happened to be in Rome's way when they were trying to build their land bridge to Spain before the Cimbri Wars. This tribe was crushed by the Romans, and they needed time to recover. Rome, being forced to retreat from the region thanks to the Cimbri, probably helped them quite a bit in recovery. However, before Rome solidified their control in the area, they made an alliance with the Adui. The Adui had been mortal enemies of the Arverni for control in central Gaul. The Arverni, by the 70s BC, had recovered, but they still were not in a position where they could effectively win a war against the Adui because it could risk war with the Romans who still held an alliance with the Adui. And while their resources had recuperated, it would be a huge drain on them to finish the fight once and for all. Now, they weren't alone in this fight. One of their allies was the Sequani. Now, the Sequani were enemies of the Adui in order to control the modern-day river of Somme. The Somme River was a major trade route through eastern Gaul, and whoever controlled it would gain a lot of wealth. So the Sequani decided to go against the Adui and join the Arverni in a goal to ultimately wipe them off as a major power. That would leave the Sequani and the Averni as the only powers in central and eastern Gaul. However, they couldn't do it on their own. They needed help. They needed what they considered elite troops. So they decided to outsource, get some mercenaries to fight this war for them. And luckily enough, the Germans are right there across the Rhine. They can march through the Sequani's territory and be right there at the Adui's doorstep. So they reach out to the Swabi, who agree. They're promised loot and payment by the Averni, and they march to war against the Roman ally. 
However, the Romans do not get involved in this matter. Instead, Julius Caesar's predecessor decides that the Suebi should be declared friends of Rome and the Senate. And they are. It's not looking good for Rome's ally. So, the Suebi arrive. And according to Julius Caesar, they wreck shop. Uh, the Gauls are unprepared for this. The Adui are decimated. And the Germans see the amount of loot that's available, realize how easily they can defeat this Gallic tribe, and they start calling in more mercenaries, start calling in for more supporters. By the time the war is over, Julius Caesar claims that 120,000 Germans have crossed the Rhine. Now, this number is probably exaggerated, and this number isn't all warriors. This would have included families, women and children, the old. All of them would have come along with the warriors at this point. But initially, 15,000 Germans crossed the Rhine, and they're serving with the Sequani and the Averni, and they're really putting the Adui in a terrible position. Eventually, one last battle is fought. And it looks like the Adui are going to win until the Germans sweep them off the field. According to Caesar, they lose everything. Their government is captured and killed. Their cavalry is wiped off the map. All their cities are destroyed. And the Adui are forced to bend the knee. They are forced to accept the fact that they are no longer a major power and that they will serve the Averni and the Sequani. And the story could have ended there. That could have been it. The Averni and the Sequani are celebrating. They have united a huge piece of Gaul. They can keep Julius Caesar and the Romans at bay as long as they maintain a united front. But it doesn't stop there. I'm sure they were celebrating. They were happy. They've won. Everything that they've been trying to do for the last couple of decades has come to fruition. Their population might have been hurt in the war, but thanks to these mercenaries, nowhere near as bad as it could have been. But the problem is, is that they use mercenaries. This is an issue any country runs into. When you use mercenaries, you have to remember that they're in it for the money, for the wealth. They don't care about your cause. They don't care about the fact that you got some territory. They need to be paid. And they have no reason to follow your plan if there's something that they could get on their own or from another party who can pay more. At this point, Julius Caesar mentions Ariovistus. Now, he would have been part of the original arrival party. That original 15,000, Ariovistus would have been a part of that. From what we can tell in the sources, he was a powerful and charismatic leader to his own people. But he was also extremely cruel to his enemies. He was highly intelligent. He knew how to read people. He knew how to play people. And this is a very dangerous combination to have and a mercenary leader. 
And so while the Averni and the Sequani are celebrating their victory, Ariovistus is realizing that if the Adui were this easy, what does that say about the Averni and the Sequani who needed his help to take them down? And how easy is it going to be to take their land, especially considering they're not expecting anything? They're rich. They have cities. They have territory that would be a great addition to his own little kingdom. Why not take it? And so he does. He convinces his people to turn on the Sequani. And in an instant, he captures a third of their land for his own people. He then demands another third of that for new settlers that are coming across from the Rhine. More allies, more of his own people to take over the land that he's just taken from his allies. The Sequani were caught off guard. Their armies have just turned on them. Their allies, the ones that they have fought in this last war with, are now enemies. Cities that would have been considered secure would have been overwhelmed by the German mercenaries that take them by surprise. Ariovistus must have moved quickly and decisively in order to conquer a third of the territory and then be able to demand another third. At this point, Ariovistus gets very cocky and extremely cruel. According to Caesar, he quotes, demands as hostages the children of all the principal nobles and wreck on them every kind of cruelty. If everything was not done at his nod or pleasure, that he was a savage, passionate, and reckless man, and that his commands could no longer be borne. Unquote. Now, this is what Caesar is saying is being reported to him. But the picture it paints is not something pretty. Ariovistus is asserting himself in the territory. He's coming down hard on the native Gauls. He's making sure that the nobles do not step out of line. He's making sure that the peasants do not step out of line. And he's bringing in more allies from across the Rhine to settle into the Gallic territories, loyal, trustworthy Germans in his point of view, that won't rebel against him. So Ariovistus goes from this mercenary king to the controller of a large part of eastern Gaul. He controls Alsace. Now, France and Germany has always had this history of who should own Alsace. Lorraine's been thrown in there a couple of times too. But when you first saw the title of this episode, for those of you who have a deeper understanding of history, probably immediately went, oh, are we talking about World War II? Are we talking about the lead up to World War I, the Franco-Prussian War, Napoleonic War? It could be anything when we're talking about Germans and Alsace. But in this case, it's one of the first times where the Germans and the people who live in modern-day France, the Gauls, in this case, are fighting over Alsace. So, Ariovistus has set up a camp. He controls this huge portion of Gaul. 
He is wrecking shop. He is putting down possible rebellions. He's being extremely cruel to the people. He's forcing them out of their lands. What are they doing? What is their plan? Well, they turn to Caesar. You see, Caesar at this point was being hailed as a friend to Gaul. He had defeated the tribe, the Helvetii. Remember, we talked about them last episode. He had defeated them. And to many in Gaul, Caesar was seen as a savior because he defeated this huge tribe that had flat out said, hey, we're going to destroy everything in our path. We just want to get to the far side. And if we wanted, we could conquer all of Gaul. He had defeated this tribe. He had saved a lot of Gaul from this devastation. He maintained the borders of his allies. He seemed like someone that you could go to for help and not expect to be stabbed in the back, unlike Ariovistus was turning out to be. For Caesar, this victory had boosted his position in Rome, and it gained him support from his troops. For the Gauls, they saw Caesar as an ally, someone that they could go to for help and not worry about him trying to take over their territory. And sure, in a couple years, they'd be kicking themselves for this, but at the time, it made sense. Ariovistus had taken a huge part of their allies' land and was planning to take more, and Caesar had kept his word. So the Averni, the Adui, and the Sequani, along with other local tribes, all send these delegates to Caesar to plea with him to stop Ariovistus, force him to go back across the Rhine, end his control of the region. So that way, they could go back to controlling it. And Caesar talks about this meeting, how they come to him, how they explain the devastation that Ariovistus is placing on the people in Gaul. And he also mentions how the Sequani are silent the entire time. And they keep their heads down in shame. And when he asks why, it's because that their lands have been the most devastated by what should have been allies. But Caesar's in a pickle. He can't just go to war with the Suebi. Remember, before he took this position, his predecessor had declared that Ariovistus and the Suebis were friends of Rome. Hey, these guys are good guys. They are going to help us. You don't go attacking your friends. That's just a big no-no. And remember, he still got the triumvirate. So if he declares war on the Swaby without good cause, then the triumvirate are going to think that he's overstepping. These are allies. You don't take on and crush your allies. So he's stuck in this position where these people are coming to him begging for help and it's a chance to expand his power and Rome's power. But he can't just go to war without risking political suicide. There's another factor to this as well. If Caesar did nothing, if he told the nobles of Gaul and said, I'm sorry, I can't get involved right now. Rome does not want to be involved in this matter. They would go home. There would have been attempts of rebellion. They would have probably been crushed. But Ariovistus wouldn't have settled, at least not in Caesar's mind. He would continually call for more allies across the Rhine, more of these warriors that had destroyed 
the Gallic forces. And Caesar was not excited about fighting the Germans for control of Gaul. If you read his book on Gaul, he continuously mentions that the Germans were superior warriors and that any time they fought against the Gallic tribes, it was an easy win for the Germans. In fact, he will rely heavily on German mercenaries in his campaign later on to conquer all of Gaul. So he has a very deep respect of the German warrior. There's no doubt about that. But he fears them as well. He knows that if Ariovistus gets a chance to set up a kingdom in Gaul, to build up an actual kingdom right across a river, it would set up a dangerous and hostile situation that he's not sure Rome can win. Quote, that moreover, the Germans should by degrees become accustomed to cross the Rhine, and that a great body of them should come into Gaul, he saw dangerous to the Roman people, and judged that wild and savage men would not be likely to restrain themselves after they had possessed themselves of all of Gaul, from going forth into the province and then marching into Italy, as the Cimbri and the Teutones had done before them particularly as the Rome separated the Sequani from our province, against which events he thought he ought to provide as speedily as possible. Unquote. What Julius Caesar is saying here, and he talks about himself in third person, uh, what, what he's saying here is that he believes that when the Germans have established themselves in Eastern Gaul, that's not going to be enough. They're going to want more riches. They want to fight, to conquer. And so they're going to take the rest of the Gaul, and that's still not going to be enough for them. Eventually, they're going to look to the south and realize, hey, Rome has a lot of wealth. In fact, it's got more wealth than what Gaul had. And they're going to cross the Rhone. And he's not sure that they can stop them. Because remember, the Cimbri and the Teutones, they were so close to wiping out the Roman Republic. And unless he nips this in the bud, he believes that's the future. But still, he can't go to war yet. So he's going to have to talk to Ariovistus and hope that he can reach an accord with him. So Caesar sends out ambassadors to the Swavi, and he's hoping to sort this out without risking upset. He wants to make sure that Swavi don't get too powerful, but he also doesn't want to risk a war and lose everything. This first request is simply to meet Ariovistus. He wants to meet him wherever he would like to meet. But Ariovistus, he's not a nice guy. I'll just say that. He's not very nice. He realizes that he's in a position of power, and he decides to play with it. So he sends back to Caesar and says, hey, I don't need anything. In fact, if you need something, you should come to me yourself. This is a huge power play. Both realize that if Caesar went to Ariovistus or the other way around, then they would be at the mercy of one another. They had been in each other's territory. So neither of them were going to travel to one another. Ariovistus doesn't stop there, though. He goes further and says that Rome has no call 
to be involved in the matters that Caesar brings up. Because the problems that Caesar mentions to Ariovistus is issues that are internal to the Suebi's new kingdom. And so the Romans don't need to be involved. In fact, they should go mind their own business. So Ariovistus sends a very harsh note back saying, no, if you want to meet, you come see me. And by the way, there's really no point in meeting because you have no reason to complain. Caesar sends out another letter. This time, though, he decides to be more forceful. Quote, Since after having been treated with so much kindness by himself and the Roman people, Ariovistus makes this recompense to Caesar and the Roman people that when invited to a conference, he demurs and does not think that it concerns him to advise and inform himself about an object of mutual interest. These are the things which he requires of him. First, that he do not at any more bring over any body of men across the Rhine into Gaul. Pause right there. Caesar is requiring Ariovistus to do this. Back into the quote now. In the next place, the Ariovistus restore hostages, which he has from the Adui, and grant the Sequani permission to restore to them with his consent those hostages which they have, and that he neither provoke the Adui by outrage nor make war upon them or their allies. If Ariovistus would accordingly do this, Caesar and the Roman people will entertain a perpetual feeling of favor and friendship towards Ariovistus, but that if Caesar does not obtain that, he will not overlook the wrongs done to the Adui. Unquote. All right, long, long quote. I'm really sorry about all the he's thrown in there, but that's just how it's written. So let's break this down. First of all, Caesar tells him, hey, you got in the position that you got into because of Rome. You owe it to us. It was due to our friendship that you were able to set this little kingdom up. We didn't get involved when the Adui were getting defeated. Now you're refusing to meet with us. That's not really nice. You're kind of throwing it back in our face. So if you're not going to meet with us, this is what you need to do in order to avoid war. First, you got to stop bringing people from across the Rhine. You can't bring anyone else here. Give back all the hostages. Stop your terrorizing of the Gallic tribes. Maintain the peace. In trade, Caesar's not going to go to war. These are very huge demands. Caesar is presenting an ultimatum. And he's got to know that Ariovistus is going to say no. First of all, if Ariovistus wants to build a lasting kingdom, he needs allies. He needs loyal people. He's not going to get that from the Gauls he's been torturing. So he's got to bring allies from across the Rhine, people who want to settle in his land. If he agrees to Caesar's demands and stops that, he runs out of allies. Second, it just destroys everything that he did. He successfully conquered 
two-thirds of the Sequani territory. Now he's supposed to give all that back? He's supposed to stop terrorizing? He's supposed to stop expanding his kingdom? There's no way. And what we know about Ariovistus, he would never agree to these demands because of his personality. And the threat that it would bring to his leadership in the Swaby tribe. I mean, who wants a leader who immediately backs down and gives away all this territory you just took? No one does. And so, by surrendering to Caesar's position, it would mean that Ariovistus would have to accept that Rome is stronger than the Swaby. And that would immediately end any hope of him maintaining his position as the king of the tribe. So, of course, Ariovistus refuses, but he doesn't just send back, no, sorry. No, he adds his own little flair to it. First of all, he replies back that says, look, does Rome allow someone to say, hey, give back that territory? Return everything you've taken. Go back to Italy. Don't come back. Does Rome allow people to tell them that? No. Then why should the Swaby? If you're not going to do it, then why should we? You're just being hypocritical. And then he just goes straight to the threat that Caesar mentioned. Caesar said, hey, we'll go to war with you. We won't forget everything you've done to our allies. We'll repay it. And Aravista says, quote, No one has ever entered into a contest with him, himself, without utter ruin. Unquote. Yeah. You just told Caesar, bring it. Just remember, no one's ever defeated me. And with that, it seems that diplomacy has failed. At this point, after receiving this response from Ariovistus, word reaches Caesar that two brothers, Nasius and Sombreus, have reached the far side of the Rhine, and they have a large army of the Suevi ready to cross the river and join with Ariovistus. In Caesar's mind, he's out of time. He can no longer just keep sending ambassadors and try to work with Ariovistus. Though, to be fair, from the sound of these messages being sent back and forth, I don't think they were ever going to work it out. But Caesar is going to have to go to war. Or else risk allowing Ariovistus to get too powerful, too strong for Rome to take on. Next week, we will discuss the meeting between Caesar and Ariovistus face to face and the decisive battle that will resolve who will rule Eastern Gaul from or the Germanic Kingdom of Swabia. Please go like us on Facebook or on Twitter. Send me a message or just let me know of our social media programs if you'd like to do an episode on Franz Lieber I would love to but I want to see what you guys think I hope you guys have a great week I'll see you next Tuesday